You mentioned Abraham. Abraham is a prophet to you, is a prophet to us. We have the Ten Commandments, you have the Ten Commandments. Isn't it just crazy that the Jew and the Arab are closer than any other religions? And yet here we are discussing this. I've often thought, and I don't mean this to sound um, condescending or anything, but in some ways we always looked upon treating our staff in a similar way to we would our children. You need to be firm but fair. It's very important that people respect you. That's the first thing and the most important thing. If they like you as well, that's a bonus. But if they like you and don't respect you, it won't work. If you want to be a champion one day, if you want to go to the Olympics, you have to learn that failure is a part of the game. And it's going to be tough. And you're going to have dark days, but it's worth it. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. I am joined today by a two time Olympic medalist. Uh, a, a judo superstar who won bronze in two games despite crippling anxiety. And that's what we're going to explore today, how he built the mindset and the, the focus to overcome his nerves and get bronze medals on two occasions. He's now the owner of Olympic Mindset, which is a motivational speaking company where he works with organizations, sharing what he learned on that journey about overcoming anxiety and the fear of failure to become a success. Before I introduce him, I should just give a little bit of background. A couple of weeks ago, we had a special Connected Leadership podcast episode focusing on the impact of the events in the Middle East on people elsewhere and, and, and really calling out for a plea for more understanding and conversation rather than simply finger pointing. Uh, Ori is actually joining us from Israel um, and we do run the risk of having a disrupted uh, recording. As he said to me just before we, we press record, hopefully the rockets won't land while we're uh, recording. So if it's a disjointed episode, that, that would be why. Obviously, I'm very grateful to him for agreeing to join us while this is all going on. It was all agreed before this happened. And I would have totally have understood if he'd wanted to postpone the recording. But of course, as best as possible in such a situation, you carry on as best you can. Not everyone can, but if you're in a position to, you do. So I'd like to welcome Ori Sasson. Thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast, particularly in the circumstances they are now. And I think I have to ask you, first of all, how are you and, and how are your family? Well, so before I'm answering uh, the question, first of all, I want to say I'm very grateful to be here and uh, meet you. I heard a lot about your podcast, so it's a big privilege to me um, to speak with you. So thank you for that. Thank you. Well, the situation is very difficult. Also because I have young nephews and the parents have to keep them busy all the time. There is stress and fear from the rocket. Um, it has already become part of our routine here in Israel. There are financial problems here for business owners. For example, I can say that I, I don't have uh, lectures at all. So it's a big problem. 
people live under pressure and hardly go outside the house. It's, it's difficult. And I used to give every day Zoom lectures and try to strengthen the, everyone who chooses to listen to me. I meet the families of the murder, the children, the parents. It is very sad. But Israel will win. We must win. I can only imagine how difficult it is for you. And, you know, it, it's difficult to express some empathy and sympathy from thousands of miles away when you're not in the middle of it. But I hope for everyone involved in Israel, in, in Gaza, that this is resolved quickly and you can get back to rebuilding lives and to something approaching normality. Um, we're going to be talking about anxiety and how your anxiety impacted your sporting career. It, you talk about talking to the families of people affected by what's happening. And obviously, pretty much every family is going to be directly affected there, both by the fear and, and, and the impact of the rockets, but also of, of family members going to war and, and the memories of what happened with the original attack by Hamas. Your experience of dealing with anxiety must really come into play now. Anxiety must be one of the most prevalent emotions that people are feeling now. And I guess without being glib, the... Um, Feeling anxiety before a sporting event is being put into focus now. Well, you know, I had a long story with the anxiety. I felt it since I was very young. Um, on my way to my first big competition, I was sitting in a car in the back seat of my father's car, and I remember exactly what I felt. I was so nervous that I couldn't eat my breakfast and I pray to God that we all got stuck in traffic so I would miss my fight. When I arrived to the competition, I saw all the other com com competitors warming up. I joined them. I started to run and my legs felt so heavy. So I couldn't lift them. The fight started. And if I'm not wrong, after 10 seconds, I found myself on my back. By the way, in judo, the main goal is to throw your opponent on his back. So basically, the more your opponent's back touch the floor, the more points you get. So I lost the first round while I was staring at that floor fence and light in the ceiling. And I thought to myself, what a mistake. I shouldn't be here. And also I felt ashamed and I felt like I don't belong to this sport. I was frozen. Like that was my first experience in my first competition. And it's a long journey of overcome my fears, but my first um, experience was very hard. And I learned a lot during the, the years. I learned tools, I learned insights, uh, which I share with people um, in Israel and all over the world. And if I learn something, if I know something from what I've been through is that you can live with anxieties and you can be successful with anxieties, but we're going to speak about it later. Yeah. Well, let's go back to that first fight and when you had that anxiety. When you picked yourself up off of the floor, you know, when I first was reading about what you'd been through, I thought, well, why did you go back? 
if the anxiety was that bad, I can understand you being, you know, almost forced into that first fight because you're in on the way there already. But why didn't you walk away after it was such an awful experience the first time? Because I had a huge desire to show the world who I am. I felt that people who surround me didn't appreciate me enough. And I felt like I was very talented, but all the coaches, all the people from the judo world said, Hori is a talented judo player, but he's a quitter. Actually, they didn't understand that I had an anxiety during the fight. So I wanted to show them that I can overcome my fears and I can be successful. And every day before I went to sleep, I was dreaming about the Olympic podium. Even though I was so far from that point, right? I, I was very hungry to show the world who I am. And that was even more important for me. I didn't know how it's going, that it's going to be so hard and so challenging, but I was ready for it and I'm happy I did it. How how old were you at this stage when you started out? I was eight years old. My brother was my role model. He was the Israeli national champion. And later he became the European champion under 20 years old. And I followed after him. And I started to train because of him, actually. He took me hand by hand to the judo hall. And he supported me all the way. And... Later, we, we even used to live together and we share a, a room in Wingate, which is the sport, the Olympic Center in Israel. And he was one of the most influential people who surround me. And how much older than you is your, your brother? He's four years older than me. Oh, so he was yeah. 12 at this time. And was he at that first fight? He was there, staring uh, uh, at me. <laughs> so how did he respond before when did he know you were anxious could he see what was happening and how did he respond after the fight i felt like he really wanted me to win and i felt insane right after the, the match like he was there he wanted to show everyone that his brother is also good but i think it was in my mind like sometimes we have a vision and we think that our vision is, is, is true, but it's not always true, especially in anxiety. And anxiety has changed your whole mindset. So, but, I, but right after the match, he came and he told me, Ori, listen, and I will never forget what he said to me. If you want to be a champion one day, if you want to go to the Olympics, you have to learn that failure is a part of the game. And it's going to be tough. And you're going to have dark days, but it's worth it. And... The day after I woke up, I went to train and I started to change my mindset as a kid. But still, the anxiety always blocked me from being successful. Because as a kid, you don't know what's going on in your body. You just feel like you're frozen. But he was there always. Yeah. So you said that sometimes we have this perception that yeah. might not necessarily be true. And the example you used was what your brother, you thought your brother was thinking about you, and that yeah. wasn't the case. Yeah. How much of your anxiety over the years has been about what other people might think and, and has been misplaced? Wow. It, it's always like it's part of the anxiety that you think that people look at you as a different way, like you're nuts, and, 
uh, that make it even more strong. And then anxiety became much more stronger when you think about others. But when you just clear your thoughts from what people think or saying, it helps you to overcome the anxiety. Um, but at the beginning, you think that something is wrong with you. And yes, that's true. Now, when we speak about it, I think that one of the most important breakthrough I did was just clear my thoughts from other people. But it's very hard at the beginning, especially when you're young, you know? And once you start doing it when you're young, we embed that behavior. So we start to create uh, a story in our minds and that story that's becomes right. our truth. And that's that's what you went through. So how did you... And also, Sorry. Andy, I want to say one more, one more thing. When you're practicing judo, when you're competing judo, it's an ego world. It's an ego world because everyone wants to win. Everyone wants to show that they are the best and... It's not popular to show emotions. Like if you show emotions, you found yourself very outsider, usually. And at the beginning, I was very shy to say I'm afraid, I have an anxiety. But like you said, it's not only the anxiety of the moment, it's also the fear from the environment. And I, I think that some of the audience that now listening to us, for sure, they, they connect to what I'm saying. It's really interesting for me that you say that because I talk a lot about the importance of showing vulnerability, the importance yeah. of saying I don't know or I'm not sure or I'm struggling. And that alpha ego world that you talk about is the, the danger to that, is the enemy of that. Do you think that's changing in the world of judo? Because I look at the example I can think of is heavyweight boxing where you still have the egos and the alpha struts going on, but you also have someone like Tyson Fury talking about his mental health issues. Yeah. So yeah. Ha have you seen a change in the world of judo? Is it starting to adapt? Of course. And actually, I'm not against ego. Yeah, Ego uh, drives us to, to success. But yes, I'm seeing... Oh, it's also, it's also about balance, right? We can use our ego, but at the same time being valuable. And yeah, for sure. We saw it in the last Olympic Games with Simon Bills that she told everyone, I'm, I'm scared. I cannot show up. And then I think people realize more and more that the mental health is something you can't afford it. You need to talk about your fears. You need to be open. Uh, and I can tell you that my sports psychologist, Elad, helps me a lot. He's a huge part for my success. And the more I was aware to myself, the better I become. Yeah. So obviously you've worked with a sports psychologist. Uh, for how long? Uh, at what age did, did you start uh, working with someone who could help you work through these issues? We started to work together when I was 22. And I think that it's too late. Not <laughs> too late, but it's, it's, it's late. But, you know, in Israel... You get the treatment only when you uh, win medals. Before you need to pay by your own by yourself, and it's very expensive, I guess. And yeah, let's go back to the eight-year-old who's flat on his back, looking at the ceiling. Uh, you talked about your desire and the goal and the vision that drove you forward, but you still had to develop some coping mechanisms. You talked earlier about some tools to help you deal with the anxiety. So let's get into the practical part here. Although you've shared some brilliant advice already, what did you do to try and 
cope with the anxiety and start to build your strength and your prowess in judo? Well, as you said, I realized that the mental thing was stopping me from being successful. And I decided that I had to find solutions. I can talk about three most tools I've learned. The first thing I did was stop being so hard on myself. Instead, every lose uh, will be hard and will bring with it sense of the end of the world. I decided to study and try to understand why it happened. And something about the attitude of how I treat losers has changed. I realized that lose is an excellent opportunity to grow and become more aware, uh, as I said before, and this thing directly lowered the anxiety index before competition and during a fight. The second thing I did was working on being mentally tougher during fights because, you know, judo, you compete against someone from Georgia, he will do everything in order to win you. You can't be soft. You have to be tough. So how you become tough? And also, I, I used to give up in certain situations, but I learned to stay positive and push through it. This made me fight longer and get better. You know, judo is only five, it's between four to six minutes fight. But And people sometimes tell me, ah, it's not so hard. But I'm telling you, during those five minutes, your heart that races to 200 beats per, per minute, you lose feelings in your arms and legs. Sometimes your vision go black from all the effort of fighting. And with all that, you have to stay calm and make the right decision. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself on your back, like, like my first experience in, when I was eight years old. Jordan Peterson, if you heard about him, uh, in, in his book, he, he spoke about the lobster. And he gave him as an example of body language. Instead of looking helpless, he talks about take a deep breath and keep fighting and, and always be ready with your hands. So I change also the way I, I compete and the way I think about situations that and instead of telling me, wow, I'm, I'm afraid right now, I'm not strong. I change my attitude. I change my body language and it helps me. Those are some really interesting strategies and you know, ones we'll be familiar with, you know, the power pose, which Dr. Amy Cuddy talked about for, for people before they give a talk. She talked about making yourself as big as possible and reminding yourself how powerful you are. There's the power of self-talk and positive talk. The trick is to pull on that at the right moment, to, to remind yourself when things are going against you to pull on those tools. When you're in the middle of a fight and it's going against you, how easy was it to pull on that positive thinking the power pose in the middle of a fight and could you do it and could you feel the fight turn the other way so it's never easy since the beginning it was hard and during the years it was even harder but i think the more i train myself into these situations in trainings you know we train like between 10 to 15 training per week per week. So I found myself looking for this situation. For example, if I'm doing randori in judo randori, it's meaning fight. Okay. It's a big part of the, of the training. You need to fight in order to improve your shape. So when I felt the pressure, when I felt the, the weakness that my body is tired, instead of 
doing what I used to do, okay, and give up or just tell myself negative thoughts or negative things, I stopped. And I told myself, Ori, now it's the moment you need to decide. Or you're going to change your attitude. And if you need to, to scream like an animal, scream like an animal. And it's funny, I'm saying animal, but my, my sports psychologist and I, we, had a, we talked about the lion and the cat. But sometimes you're a cat in your whole life and sometimes you're a lion. But if you choose to be a lion, so act like a lion. And I started to act like a lion. Also, not only in fights, also when we, we ran in the mountain, I used to, to rest more than the others because I was afraid from push myself to the limit. And instead of that, I just screamed. I remember I really started to scream. And that scream helped me to understand that I'm in this specific situation and I need to keep moving. So I learn and I change my attitude about my confidence. Yeah. And the more I did it during trainings, the better I was in competition. Because, you know, everyone watches the competition in the Olympics, but they don't see how that we worked so hard before. And the mental work is always there. Always. So, and also I spoke about it with my sports psychologist, Elad. I spoke about them and we recognized those moments. And I, I, I had a paper right after uh, every training and I used to write, I gave myself feedbacks, yep. mental feedback and physical feedback. And we spoke about it just every training. I told him, listen, a lot today with him, I felt very good, but the, with the other, I felt like I'm give up. Okay, let's talk about it. And when you split your, uh, your training and to those parts, the, it makes you better. It makes you better. Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it's an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. So when you say you wrote a paper, to me, it sounds like you, you kept a journal. And again, it's another of those techniques we hear about and a lot of people swear by, and that was really powerful for you, reflecting on what you'd achieved in that training session, what you could learn from it and talking that through. So that helped you really focus and bring that forward. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting that you've now gone into a professional speaking career, a role which is associated with anxiety. My second book was called And Death Came Third because there was a survey in the New York Times on social anxiety where they asked people what they were most frightened of and death came third. And the top fear was walking into a room full of strangers and the second top fear was speaking in public. So you've picked another profession where for someone who, who suffers from anxiety, that presents another challenge to you. And it's something I've been doing for many, many years now, over 20 years. And people mm -hmm. say to me, do I get nervous? And I can get extremely nervous. And, and a lot of the things that you've talked about are happening. People don't see it, but physically I feel it. You know, I, before a big talk, I will physically go through the mill. And mentally, you talk about the, the belief, the story that we tell ourselves about what other people think. I'm creating 
conversations from other people that are all negative about me, even before I've gone up on stage. So do you get affected by anxiety before you speak? And are you using the same techniques in a talk? And I'm assuming you're not roaring like a lion halfway through a keynote talk. <laughs> yeah, so when I realized that my mind could tell stories, but my body doesn't have to follow them, I applied this in my personal life. I quickly improved my performance in battle. So I always say that judo uh, reflects life. In judo, you're taking risks, often lead to success. I used to be more cautious in judo in my personal life. But then I decided to start taking risks in life, uh, like in relationship, and I became more open and vulnerable. This change made me more powerful and aggressive, by the way, during the fight. So when I speak in front of people, of course I'm exciting before. Of course I'm standing at the backstage and think to myself, wow, maybe they don't gonna like it. They don't gonna listen to me. Am I good enough? But then I remind myself all the tools I've learned. You know, I can't afford to me not using those tools. I'm, I'm speaking about those tools. And what I realized is that if you feel something in some situation and this voice tell you, don't take the risk. Don't need to listen to, to him, 99% of the cases. So I'm always more afraid of not taking risk. That's what I'm saying. That makes me much more scared because then I know that I'm not grow. So before those moments when I'm standing, for example, at, TED, at my TED Talk, I was very excited in 2017. I, it was my first lecture in English and, uh, and I didn't practice so much. But the moment before... I told myself, Oi, you're an Olympic medalist because of those moments. So use it. And it's about confidence. It's about process. It's about respect the process. It's not happening in one day. You know, I train myself in order to, to do it. So that's what I'm trying to, 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 to teach um, uh, managers and people generally. I love that. And I love when you said your mind might tell you stories, but your body doesn't have to follow. I yeah. think that's incredibly powerful. Uh, you, you mentioned in an article I read that you've got two strategies. Um, oh, and also, Andy, I, Andy, I want to say one more thing. If yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Possible. Please. The moment I realized what's the translation of an anxiety that makes me much more uh, stronger because I understand that where it came from, why it comes. I mean, you need to be aware that's also a very important. People sometimes take it to the to the different level, but an anxiety is something naturally, and it's also important to read about it and not in an obsessive way, right? But just speak with with people, go to treatment. It helps. It just helps. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that once you verbalize and you understand what the problem is, you can then start to rationalize it, make sense of it. Yeah. You can start to understand it, and then you can put the techniques into place. So th that makes a lot of sense. I, I read this piece, and you talked about other strategies beyond coping with anxiety that, that's helping you to succeed. You've talked about one of them, which is your approach to taking risks. The other that really interested me was getting past your need for immediate gratification. And we, we, we live in a world where people are obsessed with short-term results, short-term impact. You know, I worked for a company where I quit in the end because 
I couldn't make long-term decisions because everything on my contract was dependent on the quarterly results of the New York Stock Exchange. So every three months, the focus would shift and you couldn't build something. Uh, People I work with who have to focus on their targets this year, and that can impact them building relationships that will help them next year. So how do you address that personally so that you dampen down the short-term importance and you focus on the long-term? So, you know, the main goal for every Olympic athlete is going to the Olympic Games and win the medal, you know, and win the podium and what it takes. But you can't think about it every day. It's it's very hard to, to dream about one goal, which is going to be in so late. You need to, to think about what you have to do tomorrow, today, next week, the, the, the next competition. If you think about, if I would think about the Olympic Games in 2014, for sure it will hurt my, my motivation because first of all, I have to qualify to the Olympic Games. I need to win in local competitions and then I need to win in tournaments all over the world. But if I would think about the, the Olympic Games, it's hard. And when I had the program from my coaches, from my judo coach, uh, I remember it, it was more than first tournament in Russia, then European Championship, then Grand Slam in Paris. So I could understand what I need to do in order to get there, you know? And also in fight, in, in Randori, I always say that judo is like a mirror because during the, the match, you don't need to think about the end of the match. If you think about the end of the match, you can find yourself on your back. But if you focus on what you need to do now, for example, hold his sleeve and catch his head and throw him. That's it. And, and then when you're focused on, on, the, on these goals, you're not trapped because your mind is in, in the here and now. And also, before you talked about the problem of people that they want immediately, how you say that? Gratification. Yes. So, so I learned that you need to sacrifice the present for the future. You need to understand that maybe now it's hurt. Maybe now you suffer, but the more you handle it, the more you're stronger, you're going to earn in the future a lot. So that's every time I felt difficult time, I told myself, oh, and now you feel bad. That's true. Your heart, your hand is, is hurt. You have a lot of injuries. You want to give up. You want to go back to the hotel, talk with your families, eat what you want to eat, you know, but if you're going to do it, you don't going to be the, the, the people, the, the, the person you want to become. So it has to, it, it, it have to be much more stronger than, than the, than the immediately, um, um, the gratification. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a, a good example of, of that is I was interested to read that when you competed in the Rio Olympics in 2016, you shut off all distractions. So, you know, when we talk about instant gratification these days, we often talk about social media. And and that's probably one of the biggest distractions possible. You didn't pay any interest in what was happening in politics, which 2016, there was a lot happening in politics, but you didn't want to know any of that. Did you find it difficult to switch off those distractions? Did you find yourself drawn to look at Facebook or just to tweet or whatever? Or did you find it easy to shut off 
And is it something that you still practice? Listen, representing Israel is, is a huge honor, but comes with pressure because we're a small country. So every success and every failure become a big deal. And I knew deep inside of me that winning a medal could change my whole life. But I had to stay focused and I decided to delete the social media. Okay. And Instagram and Facebook wasn't there during the, the Olympic Village uh, time. And before the Olympics, I surround myself with my family, with friends, people who didn't let me, didn't, people who had bad influence on me, I dropped them because I really believe that you need to surround yourself with good people. But if you want to stay focused, you need to, to, to take all the noises out. And there's a lot of noises. There's a lot of noises, especially when you're representing Israel, you know. You know, we won the Eurovision, um, if I'm not wrong, uh, last year. And with, uh, no, two years ago. Yeah. Um, with Toy. The song of, uh, the song, the name of the song is Toy. And it was crazy. It's like it was a huge festival here. And she become... Neta, she become like a hero and also Olympic medalist. They, they come back to Israel with the medal and, you know, they're stars. So only when, when you think about it before, it's very like it's going to make you crazy because you really want to be there. And it's not like at the U.S. When you win the medal in U.S., there's a lot of Olympic medalists. So you're not special. Uh, I mean, you're good, but you're not special. And my sports psychologist and I, we always thought about the process. We didn't thought about the, the result. Okay. That helps me a lot. And if you work with organizations, I guess you know what I'm talking about. We talked a lot about dealing with the journey and dealing with your anxiety on the journey. How did the end result, the celebrity impact you? So once you've been not just once, but twice an Olympic medalist, and that, as you've said, is a, a very big deal in Israel. How did that impact your life and how did that impact your anxiety and how you coped with it? It's impacted a lot. Right after the Rio 2016 Olympics, I became a celebrity here in Israel. And it was so funny because I got messages on Instagram from girls. Hi, how are you? But <laughs> girls who never wrote me before or never answered. Now they... So your life really changed. And, you know, the social media and the followers and everyone want a picture with you and and, uh, you know, and campaigns and banks and everyone wants to be a part of your brand, which is very nice, especially after a long period when no one knows who you are and you walk at the silence in Wingate and you don't earn money at all, like $1,000 per month. It's nothing. So I came back to Israel. I felt like, wow, I was so happy. But then I, I start to ask myself, what's next? Are you going to the next Olympic Games? Are you going to, to try to, to win another Olympic medal for Israel? Are you going to be the first Israeli judo player to win two Olympic medals? No one did it before. We have only on surfing, uh, Gal Friedman in his name, and he was the Olympic champion and bronze medalist. But no one did it in judo. And, and it makes sense. It makes sense because when you achieve your biggest goal, actually, it's very difficult to find the motivation, the desire. I spoke about it like before. You know, as a kid, I always dream about the Olympic Games. And when I got the medal, I felt a little bit like I, I'm done. But then after two months, 
I was sitting in my, in my house and said, wow, I'm, I'm 25, I'm 26, sorry. I'm still young. I can still compete and, and represent Israel and I can do it. I can win another Olympic medal. But what's happened is that, <laughs> like I said before, my, my motivation hurt. And also my biggest advantage, my speed and my judo style was changed because before the Olympic Games in Rio, I did my startup actually was changing my category weight into the plus 100 kilogram, the open weight category. And I was the first judo player to, de- to do it, to, de- to do it. And after the Olympics, many athletes from the under 100 kilograms saw what I did and they said, wow, let's do it also. So then I lost my advantage because they were also speed and uh, fast. And so then I, I started to create myself again from the beginning, like I, I started to exercise new attacks and new strategies in order to win, but it wasn't like before the Rio Olympics. And one year after I competed at the European Championship here in Israel, while I was the main event, okay, in Saturday, everyone paid for the, for see me competed for Israel, but, and I lost in the first round. Oh. And it was, so hard for me, like the media killed me. They said, oh, he's not a, sport, a, a sportsman anymore. He's uh, going out to a restaurant, he's having fun. And, and to be honest, they're right. Because I did it, I, I wasn't act like a professional athlete. And then I started to understand that if I want to go to the next Olympics and win again a medal, I need to change my attitude. I need to, to come back to my tools the proportions, the confidence, the hard work, the, the body language, all those stuff, I just forgot them. Because when you don't train yourself, it's gone. You always need to train every day. And I always thought that the, the day I will be an Olympic medalist, I'm not going to have any anxieties anymore. I'm not going to be uh, dark days anymore. It's not true. Of course, I'm more happy, but I still have conflict. I still have mental problems. I'm working on these mental problems every day. I still have a psychologist. He's not a sports psychologist, but he's a clinical psychologist and we, we talked about everything. So what I'm trying to say is that it's never end the mental work and you always need to push yourself and to be more aware and to learn more. You know, I've, I'm watching a lot of lectures about psychologists, about anxiety because it's make me stronger. And then the, the COVID arrived when I came back to the shape, to, 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 to a better shape, but not the shape I was when before the Olympics. I was 10 in the ranking list, in the world ranking list, which is very nice. But COVID arrived and for one year, the training stopped and we didn't know what's going to happen. Is it going, the Olympic Games was in a big question. The Japanese didn't want to do it and at the end, we arrived to the Olympic Village and it was so different from the experience I had in Rio, you know? So I lost in, my, in the first round to Teddy Riner, who was the best uh, judo player in the whole world. It was a tough draw, but then we won the medal as a team. I was a part of a beautiful moment, of a beautiful event. And because of my friends, actually, because of the women's team, because of my friend's team, I have two Olympic medals. So... It's a good end for a long, long story. But what I can say from the journey into the Tokyo Olympics is that 
I'm so happy that I didn't give up. You know, I could give up. I could say, oh, you did your best. You already have your own Olympic medal. You can retire, actually. But no, I, I, I knew that if, I'm really re if, I'm gonna, if I would retire, I would not forgive myself. The chance I had to win an Olympic medal and, and to live with that without knowing what really good could happen would kill me. Ori, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that it's great to hear the, the happy ending. And it encapsulates what you said at the beginning, that it's that, that focus on the dream, on what you wanted to achieve. And I can see how you've now forged yourself a new career as a motivational speaker from listening to a lot of what you've said. And I'm sure you'll, you'll make a lot of difference to a lot of lives. And given the current situation, I think a lot of the tools and the, and the strategies that you've shared must be so important and so powerful, not just for you dealing with what you're going through, but for the people around you. So thank you very much. I always say thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast, but really from the bottom of my heart, from at, at a time of what you're going through at the moment to take the time to share with us, I really appreciate it. And, and as I said at the beginning, I hope you all come through this safely and start rebuilding lives very quickly. And best of luck with that. Thank, uh, thank you, Andy. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun with you. Thank you. So thank you so much to Ori for joining me. Yeah, <laughs> what can I say beyond what I've just said? There was so much gold in there. And he really opened up several times in terms of what he's learned on his journey right the way through. The humility to accept that the papers were right after you know, he'd won that, that bronze medal and just went out and parted a lot and to pick that up. But I think that on, on the topic of dealing with anxiety, there, there's so much that we're familiar with there, but that it's really important to hear in that context and to bring the theories to life, the idea of the, the positive thinking, not listening to that story, particularly that quote, your mind might tell you stories, but your body doesn't have to follow. That for me was the, the, the most quotable moment of many. Um, I maybe th think like a lion is up there as well. Sometimes you're a cat and sometimes you're a lion. So there was a lot to take away. And the fact that Ori has been happy to give his time in what must be a very traumatic period says a lot for his character as well. And uh, as I said at the beginning, anxiety is going to be one of the most prevalent emotions for Ori and people around him at the moment. And hopefully he'll help a lot of people to deal with that and move through it. And hopefully for everyone in the region, uh, we get a, a happy conclusion soon. If you do want to listen to my podcast on the topic, I, I purposely didn't dive deeply into what was happening in the Middle East today because that wasn't the purpose of this conversation. And we have just done that. Then two weeks ago, on the 23rd of October, you have my conversation with Will Kintish and Sabia Jawade, and I highly recommend that you go back to that. And I've also blogged about it in Psychology Today this month, so you can check that out as well. So lots to take in there, lots more to come. So thank you very much for joining me, and please join me again for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.